First Peter 4, 1 says, Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the spirit. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. And Father, we ask for just the help of your Holy Spirit. As always, Lord, we humbly and reverently come to your word, believing that you have given it to us to be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that, Lord, as you said, it's inspired and profitable for our doctrine and for reproof and for correction and training in righteousness that as men and women of God, we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work that we might serve you faithfully. So Lord, we ask now for the help of your spirit. Lord, strengthen us even if our bodies weary from losing an extra hour of sleep. Lord, we ask that you would make us alert and quicken us by your Holy Spirit to be able to hear exactly what you want to say to us individually and corporately as a part of your church. And we ask you to bless your word now with your spirit's ministry and speak to us, Spirit of God. We ask in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, when is the last time that perhaps you paused and just really considered what it is that you are actually living for? The thing that you're living for, the passage in front of us, you can tell from reading it, kind of addresses that issue a bit. And it gives us some helpful instruction in regarding to what we should not be living for and what we should be living for according to God's design. Now, as we go into this this morning, let me just say this. Remember that when Jesus Christ died for our sin... He did not just die for the punishment that we would experience for our sin. Certainly he did that. And I am thankful. You should be grateful that Jesus died for the punishment of our sin so that we don't have to experience the sin that we commit against God. But so oftentimes I think we sort of fail to remember that Jesus also died for our sin to liberate us also from the power of sin. That is, sin's power from ruling over our lives, whereby we would continue to be a slave to sin in the way that maybe we were before we didn't come to Christ, as we did not know the power of God and the ability to live differently according to God's will. First Peter chapter 2, we saw not too long ago, told us that Jesus bore our sins in his own body so that we, having died to sins, listen, might live for righteousness i think one of the greatest sections of scripture that really illustrate that in an in-depth way is romans 6 and 7 and 8 romans chapter 6 is that glorious passage whereby paul begins to describe how the christian's life is now united together with christ that we are joined with him in such a way that the bible says spiritually we actually share in his death and in his resurrected life. Listen to some of what first, or excuse me, Romans chapter 6 declares. It says, Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer in it? It goes on to say we should walk in newness of life. We should no longer be slaves of sin. For we have been freed from sin. Romans 6, 11 and 12 says this, then as a response to that, to the Christian, again, these are things stated to the Christian, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let, to choice, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. 
In the passage we're looking at this morning, I think this is sort of the truth that Peter, who was a believer just like you and I, who struggled with his sinful flesh just like you and I, he stumbled on occasion and slipped back into error just like you and I, but Peter here really wants to drive home this truth and communicate that the follower of Christ should no longer be living according to or living for the lusts of men, but that he says here we should be living for the will of God. The context, remember, is this. The Bible here has been speaking to us in Peter's letter about the issue that it is worthwhile it is very worthwhile to suffer on occasion for doing what is good and righteous if that is what is necessary to fulfill the will of God. In the last verses we looked at together in the end of chapter 3 there, Peter had just spoke about the necessary suffering of Jesus Christ himself according to the will of God in order to provide salvation for us. He declared there that Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And Peter used Jesus as the greatest example of that. He said, listen, according to the will of God, it was God's will, he said, that Jesus suffered for what was good. He suffered for what was righteous in order to be able to bring us to God. And he put forth that example that sometimes Christ being the greatest example of that, you and I as well must be willing to recognize that it is worthwhile to suffer ourselves in some senses personally in order to fulfill the will of God for our lives if it may require that in some measure. So with that being sort of the context of what the Bible's speaking to us about here, Peter continues now in the fourth chapter saying, therefore, in other words, in light of these things we're already considering, he says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, he says, arm yourselves now responsively also with the same mind. So Peter says to us here, since Christ suffered in his earthly body, in his body of flesh while he was here, since he suffered in his earthly body to overcome and defeat sin for us, he says as a Christian, now in response, now in response to what Jesus has done for us, we should have the same mindset as Christ as we battle against sin practically in our own lives. Peter does two things here. He reminds us of Jesus' suffering and then he calls us to a response in regards to that. He reminds us of Jesus' suffering by simply telling us that Christ suffered for us in his flesh, in his earthly body as the result of our sin against God. Jesus, who was the innocent one, who was guiltless, who knew no sin, who never committed any sin, Jesus actually, the Bible teaches, became the one, however, who endured all the physical and spiritual and eternal consequences for our sin against a holy God. In a sense, the Bible's reminding us here that Jesus received all the punishment and he experienced all the pain and suffering in himself for our sin against God. And we know as we study the scriptures how Jesus was beaten and struck multiple times throughout the night of his arrest and betrayal and crucifixion. We know that Jesus, the Bible tells us in Isaiah, literally had his beard plucked from his cheeks, pulled out of his face. We know that Jesus endured things like the scourging where his back was whipped brutally, bringing him close to the place of death just from the whipping and scourging that he endured. We know that Jesus had a crown of thorns crushed down into his head and then spikes driven through his wrists and through his feet in order to pin him to a cross in which he then experienced the crucifixion process. And all the while add into that while Christ was enduring that physical suffering, he was being mocked and spit upon, in other words, to just throw more salt into the wounds of the suffering that he was already experiencing. And Jesus was enduring that suffering for my sin. He was enduring that suffering for our sin, not for his own. And in order to release us from sin's punishment, yes, but also to release us from sin's power. Isaiah describes it this way in Isaiah chapter 53. It says that he, Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are now healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, reflecting upon that realization, reflecting upon the realization that Jesus suffered our punishment, that Jesus suffered having, listen, the same nerve endings and pain sensations as you and I do in our body of flesh and that Jesus suffered those things in his fleshly body due to sin, reflecting on that should prompt us to rethink when we lightly indulge in sin so casually. It should cause us out of gratitude for him and toward him, considering what he has already endured for the times when we do make mistakes and we have failed in the past. It should cause us to be conscious and rethink how we could ever lightly or casually just indulge sin, not considering what we already caused Christ to suffer in those times past upon the cross. And it should call us, Peter says to us here, to a response personally. Look at the text. That's what he's telling us here. He says, since Christ, or in light of the fact, he says that Christ suffered in his body for our sin, in light of that, he says, we now as followers of Christ should arm ourselves with the same mindset. Your Bible says with the same attitude. Attitude towards what? With the same attitude and mind that Christ had towards sin. And let us ask ourselves this morning, what was the mind, what was the mindset or attitude that Jesus Christ had towards sin? Well, I think you could explain it in this way. Jesus' mindset towards sin is that sin was something to be resisted, even if it meant personal suffering. Even if it meant coming to the point of death in suffering, to resist sin and to overcome it, that was more important. See, temptation is not something we should casually surrender to. I realize we all stumble. Listen, I I know the Bible does not teach that we're ever going to be sinless and, and live in perfection. I understand that. But by the same token, sin and temptation should be not something that we casually surrender to, but instead that we passionately seek to resist. And that we endeavor to overcome by the grace of God and personal choices, even when it requires maybe some personal suffering in some capacity to not surrender and be victorious. Peter's trying to give believers here a proper mindset towards refraining from sin. Look with me there in the first verse. He says at the end of our our verse there, for he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. The idea there is sort of setting forth an example what he's just said in the statements above. That sometimes when someone is suffering in the flesh or suffering in their, in their physical body, sometimes it is directly connected to a choice that they have made to cease from sin. I think we have to be very honest to recognize that oftentimes making a break with sin and ceasing maybe from some sinful habit or sinful behavior will involve a measure of suffering. I'm all about being very realistic. You know, I'm I'm not a, and I'm an optimist. I don't consider myself a pessimist. I consider myself a realist. And I think sometimes as Christians, we want to be a little too super spiritual. We want to be a little too mystical instead of just being practical and honest that it is truly a battle to resist sin and it is a bigger battle to repent from sin once we find ourselves living in it it's a battle it's an absolute battle to refrain from indulging sinful ways and sinful practices and it may honestly involve listen some suffering it may involve some suffering to repent of or to resist from indulging sin. Take, for example, someone, let's say, who, who has a, a problem with substance abuse, a drug addict, someone who struggles with being addicted to alcohol. And, and in that condition, they determine they're ready to repent. They determine that they are ready to cease from that lifestyle, to make a break from that addiction that's controlling and destroying their life. I tell you this, I have witnessed it, I have talked to people, I have seen people, and I tell you this, that if someone is in that lifestyle of sin and they choose to cease from it or break from it, it will involve some suffering. 
there'll be some suffering involved in a detox process. It, it's not just going to be easy. Guess what? If you're going to choose to cease from drug addiction or cease from, from, from an alcoholic bondage in your life, there's going to be some suffering as you detox your body physically. and it, it's, it's difficult. There's going to be some suffering attached to that. In the same way, I think the same applies. Let's say someone's living in a deceitful lifestyle, rebellion in some form, and they're doing things in secret. They got a, another life going on that no one else knows about, and maybe they're following deceptive ways to get what they want and satisfy themselves. Maybe it's in business. Maybe it's in some inappropriate relationship. Maybe it's in some sinful habit or some evil activity. And that person comes to a place where they decide they want to sincerely repent. And they decide they are done with that and they want to come clean and cease from sin and break from what they know is disobedient to God. The reality is, I tell you, there will be a measure of suffering attached to that. It will bring some suffering. It will bring along some struggles. Even if a person decides to forsake this sinful world and start following Jesus Christ, or if you as a Christian this morning at some point say, hey, I want to become more deeply committed to God's will in my life, and that means forsaking some things or leaving some things behind, let me tell you, it's going to bring a little bit of suffering for righteousness' sake. It's not going to be easy. There will be struggle and suffering attached to those things. And that is why the Bible says here the believer must arm themselves. Arm themselves with an attitude like Christ, which is determined to defeat sin in our life at all costs, whatever that may be. Peter uses, notice in verse 1, military terms. He literally says there, arm yourself. It speaks of a soldier getting armed for battle. Reminding us that it is a spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in in this life. Believing that sin must be and can be defeated because sin is never something that we want to just think that we can be trivial with. Remember what Peter said just prior to this section back in chapter 2? He said there, abstain from fleshly lusts, listen to what he says, which war against your soul. Peter says when it comes to abstinence, when it comes to abstaining from something maybe that we've been pr previously doing, or when it comes just from abstaining from something maybe we've never done, but the temptation is very strong and severe, he says we have to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against our souls. It is a battle. It is a spiritual war to resist the power of sin, but we must believe that sin can be overcome through through things like repentant choices and believing God's truth that God's word says what it means and it means what it says that when the Bible says that we should no longer be slaves of sin that sin shall not have dominion over you that there is victory in Jesus Christ and that we can break free from things that maybe are controlling us through the grace of God and the resurrection power of Jesus Christ as we yield to it in our lives and believe that it is true, that there is victory and there is that promise of God. We must believe that and we have to act upon it. I understand there's a participation between our repentant choices and our believing and then God supplying the power to have victory to overcome. But let us not buy into the lie of the devil that sin is something that we should just casually surrender to or as if it's no big deal. That's what Paul was saying. Shall we continue in sin so that grace can abound? He was saying where sin abounds, grace abounds. And Paul says, but God forbid, don't ever let us begin to think. Well, let's see how much grace God has by sinning more. Let me test the depths of God's grace. Paul says, God forbid. We should never have that attitude. We should never trample underfoot the grace of God in our lives. Sin is never something to be casually surrendered to. Sin is a destructive force that caused the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, to suffer brutally for. And sin is something that robs and kills and destroys people's lives. Sin is what ruins and wrecks families. Sin is what destroys marriages. Sin is what ruins and defiles churches. And sin is what is destroying our society and the world who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And in light of that, we should be a believer with an attitude, the mindset of a soldier that's armed and prepared for battle. 
in regards to the effects of sin. 2 Timothy 2.3 says, You must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. See, sadly, sadly, some people never experience a clean break from sin, I think in some ways because they are simply not willing to become a courageous soldier to do whatever it takes to resist the pain that comes with ceasing or repenting from sin. And instead, they just casually surrender. They're not willing to do whatever it requires to make the break, and they surrender too quickly. And a lot of it is because they just deem that Jesus is not worthy of it. They deem Jesus is not worthy of whatever suffering it would take for them to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. And can I encourage you, please, because you're here in this room this morning, please, I beg you, do not let that become you. Don't let that become you. Don't let yourself become one who lives in such a way. The suffering we will experience for indulging sin, the suffering we'll experience for indulging sin is always going to be way worse than any suffering we would experience from repenting and resisting and ceasing from sin. You're going to suffer either way. I, I promise you the suffering of indulging sin will be way worse ultimately than whatever suffering it requires to cease from or make a break from. So Peter here, who knew the misery as a Christian, he knew the misery of failure, but he also knew the victory and the peace that comes with being able to submit to what God wants for his life. Peter here calls us and exhorts us to arm ourselves in the fight against sin. He says, verse 2, that he should no longer live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. So again, referring to that Christian who may be suffering because they've ceased from sin or turned away from sin, Peter illustrates the thought process that goes behind that. He says, such a person who has done that, they've had a change of mind. They've come to a change of perspective. And isn't it interesting, when you look at the word repentance, biblically, it literally means, metanoia, it means to have a change of mind. It means to think differently about something, a change of mind that leads to changed action or changed behavior. So he says, such a person who has ceased or turned away from sin, he says, that person, they simply had a change of perspective of what they now want to live for. He says, they've taken into consideration, they've decided, he says, verse 2, how they want to live the rest of their time here on this earth. They've thought through that and they have determined to stop living as they once did in their past, where they were serving themselves and their own lusts. He says, instead, they now want to live for pleasing God and serving his plan. Hey, everybody lives for something. Everybody does. Now, it may work itself out differently in everybody's lives, and if you just set aside all the little specific nuances, God here in his word just simplifies the whole issue. He says, let's be, let's be real bare bones. People really only live for one or two things. It's one or the other. Either they live for the lusts of men, or he says here, verse 2, they live for the will of God. It may work out differently in all of our lives, but, but God being very simple for our simple minds says, listen, it's really only two main things. It's really kind of black or white. There's not a whole lot of shades to this thing. He says people either are living their life for the lusts of men or they're living their life for the will of God. And those two things, the lusts of men and the will of God, are directly opposed. They're completely opposite in their path and purposes, and each person will live for one or the other. Living for the lusts of men implies living for self. It implies indulging and, and idolizing mankind's existence as being for nothing other than self-indulgence on the earth. Let me say that again. Living for the lusts of men really is nothing more than idolizing mankind's existence as being for self-indulgence on this earth. In other words, we exist to satisfy ourselves. We exist to indulge ourselves. That word lust there literally is a term that just means strong craving or intense desire to seek fulfillment. It can refer to a lust or a craving or desire for anything. He simply says the lusts of men, that is all the desires of mankind within us and among us, 
that drive us to seek fulfillment in experiencing them. The lusts of men and living for the lusts of men is a picture of just living a self-governed life whereby we establish our own boundaries and we set up our own standards according to what the world does or what we want to accommodate to what we can do. And so we set up our own boundaries and standards and then we live within those things so that we can fulfill what we desire, even if it's sinful. It's living according to the human spirit to pursue those things that my sinful nature desires and directs me to pursue. Now, living for the will of God is the exact opposite. Living for the will of God implies living for God instead of self. Living for God means that I honor God's existence as the sole reason why I have life on this earth. It honors God's existence as being the reason for my existence and believing and living my life according to the concept that I exist to please God. I exist to serve God. And so whatever God's plan is and God's purpose is, I want to live in accordance with that perspective by my choices and behavior. And living according to the will of God is when a person esteems God's ways, his clearly revealed ways, his very evident standards from his word and says that is the standard by which we live by. Those are the boundaries by which we let govern over our lives and we bring our lives in conformance to what the word of God says, even if it's not according to my will, preference, or desire. But instead I say, no, the word of God is what governs and has authority over my life because I want to live for God's will and submit to God's ways. It's a picture of living according to the Holy Spirit instead of the human spirit. And living according to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, which will direct us and prompt us to seek God's desires and God's purposes for my life. To seek God's plans and pursue those things, especially when those things conflict with my sinful desires. That instead I seek to live according to God's will. And it is a good thing when a believer, and it's strange that I would say that, but it is a good thing when a believer who's trusted Jesus Christ for Savior has made a clear transition in their purpose for living because they recognize Jesus not just as Savior, but they embrace and acknowledge Him as Lord. And they make a clear transition for their purpose for living. And today, it's a great opportunity for us to step back being under the authority of this text as we're here to worship and ask ourselves, what are you living for? I understand we put faith in Jesus Christ to receive salvation, but Jesus also said emphatically, follow me. It's wonderful to believe in Jesus, but does the way that we behave indicate that we're following Jesus? Paul had to talk to the Corinthian church because they believed in Jesus, but they were very carnal Christians. And their practices were completely displeasing to God. And we can all be susceptible to that. And here the Bible exhorts us to consider what we're living for. As a Christian, are you living for the lusts of men or are you living for the will of God? As a young person, can I encourage you, listen, that, that you no longer live for the lusts of your natural desires, but you say, you know, no, I'm going to live for the will of God. I'm going to live for the will of God in my life. And, and let that be what directs me. Who knows the duration of the rest of our time? He says here that they should no longer live the rest of their time for the lusts of the men, but instead for the will of God. And, and the Bible says redeem the time. We don't know how much time we have left. We want to use it wisely. He says, verse 3, for we have spent, here's the, the, the emphasis, we've spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness and lusts and drunkenness and revelries and drinking parties, imagine that, it's right in the Bible, and abominable idolatries. So Peter here reminds us, we've wasted enough time, he says. We've wasted enough time in the past, living for our own lusts before we became a Christian. He refers to our past lifetime. Verse 3 there, notice he describes it as doing the will of the Gentiles. Now that term there, Gentiles, is often synonymously used to refer just to those who were heathen or pagan in the culture. It was a term that referred to those who just did not know God. 
And because they didn't know God, since they had no consciousness of God, they lived life in disregard of God. And that's where the way a Gentile would live. They have no consciousness of God, so life was lived without restraint. They weren't conscious of God, so they didn't care what their conduct was because they didn't live with any consciousness of God because they didn't know God. And Peter says, but that's not our case. If we know Jesus, the Bible says that the Spirit of God lives in us. I would hope I'm conscious of God if he's dwelling right inside of me. And Peter's saying, listen, we don't want to live like the Gentiles. We spent enough time before we were saved when we honestly weren't conscious of God living like that and he says, we don't want to live that way anymore. And he describes here sort of this list, and it's not an exhaustive list by any means, but he describes sort of some of our past practices. Some of us can relate to that. Quite specifically, he gives sort of a quick review. It's not exhaustive, summarizing some of the ways that he says we once lived or that we once walked in. He says we once walked in lewdness that term speaks of of doing anything indecent or filthy or vulgar when somebody's a lewd person the idea is that they're very shameless and even brazen in their filthy conduct they, they have no sense of consciousness or concern they're just shameless in their conduct they the term indicates to live without any moral restraint there's no boundaries no restraint it's complete self-indulgence especially in the area of sensuality he refers to having walked in times in lusts. And again, we talked before that word lust just means strong cravings. And certainly here, he's referring to those strong cravings in all forms of sexual lust that lead to what the Bible calls sexual sin. And that can be any number of things. That can be fornication, which is sex outside of the boundaries of marriage. Being sexually intimate with someone who is not your spouse. It can refer to things like pornography and adultery and homosexuality, different lusts in various forms. He mentions drunkenness, which is to be intoxicated by alcohol, whereby your inhibitions have been removed because the alcohol is now consuming and controlling your thoughts and your behavior and your speech and leading you because of that intoxication to then be influenced to make poor decisions to conduct yourself in shameless ways, to behave foolishly. And he speaks of a lifestyle governed by drunkenness and alcoholic, those kinds of things. He speaks of revelries, or the term could be carousings. Some of your translations even render that area orgies. That's pretty intense. It's a term that's used to refer to social gatherings that are completely out of control in their activity ungodly and unhealthy and that, that lead to nothing other than destructive consequences as a result of what's going on. He mentions here drinking parties. I appreciate that the New King James uses that term drinking parties because we, that's so self-explanatory. We know what goes along with that when there are drinking parties. When you've got together with or you know, interacted with those who are getting together just to indulge drinking and so forth, we know the outcomes of those kind of things. And it's almost as if he kind of summarizes, rather than give this exhaustive list, he summarizes everything else under the umbrella by just saying abominable idolatries. He just says any other filthy thing that we gave devotion or attention to instead of God. Idolatry is the worship of anything other than God. So he says, whenever we gave our attention, our effort, whatever we sacrificed our time and energy for that wasn't God, he says the abominable things that we were all worshiping and giving allegiance and devotions to, he says we spent enough of our pastime sharing in doing those wrong things and he views that as a sort of a waste of time. He says, look, we spent enough time doing that. That was a waste of time. Now, let me say a couple things in regard to that in application. First of all, please note as we get this list in verse 3, lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, any abominable idolatry against God, those things are to mark the past of a professing Christian, not the present experience. Peter says here, we spend enough time in our past lifetime doing those things. That should mark the past of a professing Christian. 
something severely out of tune if it marks the present activity and experience of a professing Christian. He says, this was our past lifetime. Take notice here as well, because perhaps you look at this list, and, and I hope by the grace of God this is you or some of you. Maybe you look at that list and you say, I've never done any of that stuff. I've never been to a drinking party. I've never gotten drunk. I, you know, I've pretty much kept myself morally pure. I don't get involved in, in revelries. And, 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 and if that's you, the temptation there is for the devil to make you think that somehow you need to try and maybe go and experience some of these things so you can really relate to life. And you think somehow, maybe, maybe I'm missing something. All these p other people are doing this and maybe it'll give me a better sense of a good testimony and really understanding Jesus' love and forgiveness and, and everybody else around me seems to be doing it and trying it a little bit. Listen, you are missing something. Do you know what you're missing? Regret. You're missing regret. My encouragement to you would simply be this. Don't give yourself the regret. Don't create for yourself then the ongoing stumbling block to go back to such things that you've opened yourself up to. Just avoid it. And I promise you, even if you feel that you're that moral that you've resisted those things, listen, let me convince you this morning, you've still sinned enough in plenty of other areas. You may not recognize it, but just praise God that you're not connected to that kind of stuff. That you can avoid those kind of things. And the call here is to make a break with our past as a child of God, to pursue the will of God instead. And for those of us who read this list this morning, and maybe as I'm reading through that list of such activities, you're going, wow, how did he know my testimony? How did the Bible, what? that's pretty incredible. It's almost as if God was thinking about me when he was writing that there. For those of us who can read that list, he says, listen, we've spent enough time doing that in our past. I, I, I like the term there. He says, enough enough we wasted enough time doing that we've wasted enough time doing that and time it really is it's a lot like money in a lot of ways time is spent time is managed and we only have so much time to use and once it's spent it's gone so he says that time that we already spent that we wasted, it's wise to number our days and to realize the errors of wasted time that we spent and to take an initiative to say, I need to resolve to use the rest of my time living for God and following God's will now. I truly believe in my heart that for some, perhaps even in this room this morning, the Spirit of God is calling us to wake up and, and, and calling you perhaps to change your spending habits in regards to how you use your time and what you're doing with your life. It's a stewardship. In the same way, there's a time to say, you know, when somebody's got things out of, you know, out of kilter financially with the spending of their money, look, you need to change your spending habits. And perhaps the Holy Spirit is saying to some this morning, you need to change your spending habits with how you're spending your life right now. Because you've only got so much of it left. And sometimes there isn't a good occasion to stop and to begin to change the way we're spending our time. He goes on, verse 4, to say, in regard to these, that is that past list of our old life, they, that is the unsaved, think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. So notice, when a person chooses to leave sinful practices, to cease from sin, to make a break from that old past lifestyle. The Bible shows here that there will be resistance we experience from those, what? Who choose to stay in that past that we've chosen to break free from. He says there will be, for those who remain in those practices, there will be sort of a negative kickback against our life when we choose to break away from those things. He says the people in, in that lifestyle, when you leave it, they won't understand your repentance. They won't. They won't appreciate your desire to live for God or for God's will. He says here in regard to those things, they think it's strange. The term literally is an alien. They, they think it very strange. It's like you're an alien that you don't want to run with them that you don't want to run with a pack and do the same things anymore. It does not make sense to them. They, they, they perceive it as strange and foolish that you would want to leave those old practices. Perhaps you have encountered that. 
where, where, where people said, "Hey, man, you want to you want to go to the party Friday night? You want to you want to get you want to go smoke a little of this still? You want to do that? You want to hey, you want to hook back up, baby? And you know, I don't I want. What's the matter with you? What's this Bible thing? No, I, hey man, I'm sorry, I don't want to do that. You know, but, hey, you, you want to go? No, I, you know, I, I don't want to do that because you know I, I want to go to go to church tomorrow and, and have a clear mind when I worship God. What? What's the matter with you? You're not fun anymore. And and it's strange to them. It literally seems foreign. They can't grasp and understand what's taking place. And I think the Bible's saying here we should expect that. You should expect that. Things look different in the light and in the dark. If they're still living in the dark, they're not going to see what it means to live in the light. The Bible says the natural man doesn't understand the things of the Spirit. So don't be shocked, don't be surprised if you choose to make a break from the past or you've made a break from the past and people aren't understanding it. And they think the way you're living now is strange. You're, you know, you want to go, what? You're, you're going to a church again? A prayer meeting? Why do you want to do that again? You're more committed to this prayer thing, but what's the matter with you? And people find it strange. And he says, none of you think it's strange, but they actually will, he says, verse 4, speak evil of you. The idea is that they'll also criticize. They will verbally persecute. And why? Think about that. Unfortunately, that comes with the territory because your decision to live differently is going to cause a source of conviction for the person who's choosing to stay in that pattern or sinful lifestyle. And as that conviction grips their heart, your choice to break away constantly reminds them what is right and what is wrong. And it continually inflicts their conscience to show them it is a definite personal choice to decide how you live. And we're all accountable for that. And therefore, your choice to cease from that old way of life causes then conviction in that person's conscience and often to silence their own guilt or shame inwardly, they will criticize you as the result. And the intention there is sort of criticizing you to convince themselves that you're the one that's strange, that you're the one that's wrong, and to sort of pacify their own conscience and silence their own struggle within with guilt inside, they will criticize and persecute you. I've experienced both sides of that. My best friend who led me to Christ got saved before I got saved and verse 4 was what I was doing. What's the matter with you, man? What are you, goody two-shoes now? What are you, just, what's up with you? And, and I, I spoke evil. I, I gave him his fair share of persecution. And the wonderful thing is what you sow, you reap. Because when I got saved, it came right back around. And I got it from friends. I, I, rem- I got saved the month after I graduated high school. I remember going to a graduation party in the summer before we were all kind of leaving and, and going off to different places and colleges. And, and, and some of the guys that I used to drink with and party with on the weekends after they knew I became a Christian, I remember particularly going to, to one party towards the end of the summer, had a you know cup of soda in my hand. Everybody else got red cups that wasn't filled with soda, if you understand what I'm saying. And, and walking up and publicly in front of everybody there, one of my closest friends, supposedly, who I used to get drunk with all the time. Hey, Bible man, that better be beer in that cup. And literally coming and giving me a big hassle in front of everybody and then looking in my cup, seeing, and looking, hey, you know, I don't drink anymore. I'm following the Lord now. Oh, you blah, blah, blah. And smacked my cup of soda all over me in front of everybody. Part of it, man. It's part of the process. Jesus said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But yet you're not of the world. I chose you out of the world and therefore the world hates you. And this is part of the territory. Peter reminds us to sort of encourage us, verse 5, he says, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter encourages believers, maybe so we might get disheartened in that, with that treatment, to keep a proper perspective. He says, look, don't ever forget one day, they will give an account to God. They'll give an account to God both for their own sinful practices and they will give an account to God for their mockery of you and their mistreatment of you because you've chosen to broke away. He says, don't ever lose heart and lose perspective or get drawn back in in your weariness 
because you fail to remember, they will give an account to God someday. Even as you realize you were going to give an account to God, they will give an account to God for their sinful life, their mistreatment, whether when Jesus returns they are still alive and living or whether they've deceased before the Lord returns. He says, all men will give an account to him who is ready to judge. And the wonderful thing is this if you're a Christian is if you're following Jesus Christ, you get to escape that judgment that they will have to endure. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 to 15 speak of an accounting and a judgment day at the great white throne that is for the ungodly and for the unsaved. And something that we will escape as the result of our faith and commitment to Christ when others, it says, was a result of their life be judged and cast into the lake of fire. And Peter here says, don't lose perspective. Remember the right perspective in these things. Verse 6, he says, for this, is, for this reason the gospel was preached also to those who are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now take note here what Peter is saying and what he's not saying. He is not saying that the gospel is being preached to those who are dead. As if somehow people get a second chance to respond to the gospel after death. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. The text clearly shows us here that the God, it doesn't say the gospel is preached, it says the gospel was preached. It's a past tense experience. It's a reference here to the fact that the gospel was preached in time past prior to the time of Peter's writing to other believers who heard the gospel as well, following the context of Peter's frame of thought here of the suffering believer, he says those who were dead, referring to believers who suffered greatly for their faith, Peter says, look, in the same way, you're not alone. He says the gospel was preached to other believers who as well suffered for their faith. Some were even martyred and lost their lives for their faith as a result of being faithful to Jesus and, and he says, at this point, yes, those are dead historically. They physically died, but he says they are still very much alive spiritually. They were judged. They were mistreated according to men while in their flesh. Yet now, Peter says, these same believers, they live according to God in the spirit. They once experienced the judgment and mistreatment of men like you are, he says. But now they are alive and living according to God in the spirit, experiencing the eternal reward of their faithfulness to Christ. Again, the Bible tells us to be absent from the body as a believer is to be present with the Lord. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 10, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. And he gave the blessed assurance in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 1 John 2.17 says the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. See, the point is simply this. The one who lives for God now in this generation, just like those, the prophets of old and faithful martyrs of prior generations, despite what happens to us in this life, that's not the cessation of our life. We will continue to live according to God in the Spirit and experience the eternal reward for our faithfulness to Jesus. And I think here, as we come to verse 7, with this concept in mind of the culmination of things, Peter says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. As Peter reflects on the culmination of God's purposes in human history, he realized that the curtain could close at any moment. And that it would usher in the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ who is ready to judge the living and the dead at his appearing. So the Bible here gives us this reminder that the end of all things is at hand. The idea is it's very near. It's very close. Peter is saying to us the time is short and that should motivate us. The Christian who understands the coming of the end of the age should live accordingly. He says, as a result of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, verse 7, he says, therefore, here's what he says, be serious. The term indicates sober up, be alert, wake up, stop fooling around, be serious, stop fooling around with your life as a Christian. 
God says to us sometimes. Make wise judgments in regard to your relation to sin and following the will of God. The end of all things is at hand. The time is short. He says, it's time to get serious, to wake up a little bit. And he says as well, secondarily, that we should also be watchful in our prayers. To be watchful means to give careful attention to something. He's saying that we should give careful attention, better attention to prayer. To communication with God. Uh, that The Bible says that the Christian and Christians in the last days should become more attentive to prayer. That we should become increasingly concerned about spending time in prayer. The reason why is to stay in tune with God's will. Because prayer keeps us alert spiritually. You know, this past week as we just came out of a, a week of prayer that we delegated and, and designated the whole week to spend time in prayer, there were those that asked us, is there something wrong in the church that we're spending all this time in prayer? Yeah, there is something wrong. We don't pray enough. And the end of all things is at hand. And the world's falling apart. And there are a lot of Christians myself included, that maybe aren't quite as on fire for Jesus Christ as we should be. And we need to be seeking God for a revival and a fresh move of His Spirit in our midst. The end of all things is at hand. He says, be serious. Be watchful in your prayers. Why? So that we would no longer be living the rest of our time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but instead for the will of God. Look, Look at our world, gang. Look at our world. It is so evident where we are at. And today, can I challenge you? Think about, think about what are you going to live for? What are you going to live for? Can I encourage you? Perhaps today, why not make a determination? As we sing a last song, why not make a determination? It is time. I really send it as time to become serious about spiritual matters. To become serious about making a determination to cease from known sin in our lives and to repent and make a break from it. It's time to become serious about deciding to live for the will of God in our lives. Jesus said so frequently, follow me. And many times you read after he would say, follow me, it says they would forsake all and follow him. May the Spirit of God stir us to respond.